0: you ever come across a celebrity of some kind, someone famous-ish that you uh, recognized in public and admired in some way, I've never been particularly good at responding in those scenarios. Apparently standing in front of some people regularly is not the same as standing in front of certain people. So uh, even when I was a kid, during my fireman phase, like every boy has to go through a fireman phase, right, guys who wanted to be a fireman at some point? Right? Yeah? Thereabouts? Okay, so thank you. Uh, So I had my fireman phase, and um, as I don't necessarily remember all the story, though I believe it, uh, my mom's recounted it to me. We went out to eat at Wendy's. That was common. I remember that. We ate at Wendy's a thousand times. There were firemen eating there also, and I was apparently just in awe that firemen ate, and they ate at Wendy's. Maybe it was policemen. Well, I don't remember a policeman phase. Well, you know, little children, they could do that. So you fast forward to just a few years ago, five or six years ago, I was working at a Starbucks in Charleston Mall, and someone that uh, I I looked up to that that was somewhat famous was standing in line, and so I very suavely and coolly pointed at him with my jaw open, and then he just sort of pointed back at me, (laughs) and then somebody else took his order, he moved on. It's like, ah, that was good. Very, very cool moment for me, for sure. Uh, people become famous for all sorts of reasons these days. You know, maybe it's for some talent that they have or lack of talent can also make you a flash in the pan famous, something foolish that you've done. Uh, it could be that you come across, you have come across a person who is known for their character or their wisdom or their knowledge in a particular field. So imagine if that was the case. I don't know who you have in, in, in mind or you know, YouTube star, movie star, athlete, or world-renowned physicist, if that's your thing, <clears throat> if, you were, if you were with that person, you had just a few minutes to speak with them, maybe, maybe one question to ask them, stuck in an elevator-type scenario. I wonder what insightful questions you might ask. Hopefully, you'd do better than I did. In Luke 12, not our text for this morning, But in Luke 12, one of the many people in the crowd following Jesus took advantage of the privilege of being close enough to him to make a request of Jesus. Oh, this is going to be, this is going to be good, right? What did he want? The king of Israel, the Lord of the universe, the son of God incarnate, what did he want Jesus to do for him? And Luke records for us, teacher, oh, this is going to be good. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Really? Like that's that's it? One request, and it's Dad, he won't share. As a wise teacher, Jesus responded with the wisdom that the man needed rather than the help that he was seeking. After declining to judge or arbitrate in this family dispute, here's what Jesus said. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told a parable to drive that home. Be on your guard against all covetousness or against all coveting. One's life, your life, my life, that guy's life did not consist, was not defined by the abundance of his possessions. Covetousness, coveting is a sinful, consuming desire for more. It's like, well, what's the line, right? We we, we we always want really clear things. If you have X and you're here, they're like, okay, that's not coveting. It needs to be like a certain monetary amount, certain number of houses, certain number of cars, certain size home. Like that's coveting if that's what I want, but anything shy of that, I'm good, which basically means I can define anybody else as coveting, but I'm free from it. But that's not what it is. It's not wanting like a certain amount. It's that sinful, all-consuming desire for more, Typically, it flares up the hottest when it sees what others have, I don't necessarily covet something in a store as much as I might covet from a commercial or just watching you, watching my neighbor. The 10th commandment forbids coveting and points out how wide its scope is. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey, we like talking about donkeys. The Old Testament was, they were obsessed with donkeys. Like, need to do a better study on that. One of our, this has nothing to do with the text. One of our favorite verses is in Genesis where the sons of Joseph are threatened with, not sons of Joseph, sorry, the brothers of Joseph are threatened in Egypt with slavery or execution. And it seems like the most fearful statement that they have is, and they'll take away our Donkeys. And so we always say, girls, what do we say? None of them want to speak up. We always say, no, not the donkeys. Like I said, irrelevant. Don't covet the donkeys or anything that is your neighbor's. And this idea of coveting dovetails with a particular danger that drives or steers people toward false teaching. That's how we get back to First Timothy from Luke or from Genesis. Coveting dovetails with a particular danger That leads people toward a false teaching. So it's not if you're a false teacher, this is something that you should be worried about. It's if this is something that is consuming you, then you are steering your life away from the gospel and toward false teaching. As Paul warns Timothy in our passage this morning, the love of money. The love of money, a form of coveting, is a sinful desire rooted in our hearts, under the surface, that shows itself as it grows, shows itself in our lives in any number of sinful choices and consequences. And coveting was in the hearts of the false teachers threatening the church in Ephesus where Paul had sent Timothy to uh, give instructions for God's household, as the screen says. So our passage this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10, continuing where we left off last week. If you haven't already turned to 1 Timothy, uh, please do so. You can follow along as we walk through this passage together this morning. 1 Timothy chapter, 3 verse, excuse me, chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. Now, starting actually at the end of verse 2, uh, your paragraphs are probably marked the same way. Paul says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, Slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich Fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Simple point today, and that is we, we must, in the church of Jesus Christ, we must beware of false teachers. If you recall, if you're familiar with 1 Timothy, that's really where Paul started off. I mean, chapter 1, verse 3, he, he greets Timothy as in verses 1 and 2, and he says, "As When I left for Macedonia and I sent you to Ephesus, you remember what I said, I, I told you to stay there and urge, command, certain people, actual individuals, not to teach any other doctrine, right? So the whole point of this letter, and this is sort of a bookend, chapter one, chapter six, he's moving toward the conclusion. It's like, what what is it? There's the proper functioning of the church as God's household. And as you veer from that, you're moving into false teaching. So you must beware of this we must be aware of it both as members of a local church and as so much of this letter is pointed back toward uh, elders of a local church. So how, how do we do this? How, are, how do we remain wary? How do we beware of false teachers? And the first part is Paul gives so many different descriptions of this. I think is, it starts off with just a simple recognition. Recognize false teachers, right? If you beware of something, if I make up some animal or some danger and be like, beware of this as you're walking through the woods. You'd be like, what, okay, what is it? Like, is that thing on the ground? Is that thing in the air? Uh, Is it in the water? Like what, I I don't know what you're, what you're warning me about. I don't understand. So you need to learn the signs of recognition. Like I was with, uh, with my dad um, at Valley Park, which has a lot of ticks and a lot of uh, poison ivy. And so we were talking about that um, they live down in Florida and they don't really run into a whole lot of poison ivy. And so it's like, wait, you know, I remember as a boy scout, what this looked like, but I, isn't it reddish? I was like, ah, it can be reddish can be small, can be medium, can be large. <laughs> like, it could be pretty much anything. I have a friend who says, you know, you've probably heard that leaves of three, let, let them be right. you heard that, he just says leaves of green, let it be <laughs> like, just stay away from all of it. For no poison ivy, but if you know what it is you're looking for, uh, you're still going to get it. It's everywhere. But uh, recognizing the danger, recognizing what false teachers look like and how they act, and as we enter into this point, we think about, okay, what was Paul trying to communicate to Timothy, and then through that, what is he communicating to me as a pastor? What is he communicating to us as Christians? And I think there's a threefold sense in which we can look at this, and I want you to keep these three different ways. In mind, as we proceed through this, one point is, is the majority of our text this morning. And this, this is the way. First, I mean, you have to look out for false teachers, like recognize them, like look for the people that you're listening to, pay attention that you are not, uh, that you know who the false teachers are. That's the first sense. Know who the false teachers are. And then the second sense is don't be misled by false teachers, right? That's who this is, and I don't want to follow them. Sure, there's an overlap on that, right? But it's just like, just because like, okay, this guy's a false teacher, but I'm going to follow him anyway, right? That, like, that doesn't make any sense, but yet a lot of things that we do doesn't, don't make sense. So know who the false teachers are, know what the false teaching is, don't follow it. That kind of gets us in our first and second point. And then the third is don't become a false teacher, I feel this as I look at this text. I don't want any of these things to characterize me, my life and my ministry. And you and the spheres of influence that you have, I hope that you look at this text and say, I don't want to go down that path either. We all have spheres of influence. Not all of it has to do with a particular you know, ordained office in the church, but yet don't, don't follow others and don't follow others to the point where you're then leading others in this false teaching. So let's pay careful attention to this text to move forward in these ways, recognizing this. We recognize false teachers by their teaching, by their character, and by their end. First, we recognize false teachers by their teaching. Paul describes the teaching of those whom he is warning about. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, a different doctrine, doctrine. You probably have heard the word orthodox or orthodoxy in some context, and the meaning uh, of that word is that which has been accepted as true Christianity for a long time. That's kind of what orthodox means. We think of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. That's, That's an orthodox teaching. The church has established that, recognized that was what was in God's word, and said this is, you know, met together, discussed it. This is what God's word says orthodoxy, This different doctrine would obviously be the opposite of that. We could call it heterodox, other teaching, different teaching. In a sense, like I mentioned, Paul circled back because he used the same type of word, the same exact word of teaching a different doctrine in that warning in chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, heterodoxy. There's that which is the truth of the gospel, and there's that which is not. We need to know the difference. We need to recognize in the teaching, is this orthodox? Is this biblical? Or is this other? Is this different? Is this strange to the teachings of scripture? In our day, someone probably is not going to come out and say, you know, I'm teaching something different than Christians have ever believed or taught. Instead, they might talk about how their idea is a new idea. Oh, we love new. Don't we just all love new? And a new car, new floor, new phone, new this, new that. Oh, a new doctrine. That sounds exciting. That sounds a whole lot more interesting than this old doctrine. Old, bad, new, good, right? That's, That's what this might look like. They might have uncovered something recently that demonstrates how a passage in the Bible that may be difficult to understand or submit to, actually agrees with the popular thinking in our culture, as they've just recently discovered. Wow, how convenient is that? And these kinds of novel ideas should raise red flags in our minds so that we stop and consider carefully. Ask questions like this, is it possible that all Christians for the last 2,000 years have completely misunderstood or misapplied a particular passage of scripture? Is that possible? The answer is Yes. That's possible. But is it likely? I don't think so. Church fathers and and onward writers whose books have understanding scripture and explaining who God is and what he has done for us that have lasted for centuries, some for millennia. And then a guy with a bachelor's degree from somewhere reads the Bible once or twice and comes up with something novel and we're supposed to follow that? I don't think so. Let's be careful as we consider those things. And someone might raise a historical argument against this kind of an idea. Okay, recognize false teachers, teaching that is different than other teaching, but what about the Protestant reformers? We see ourselves in that vein, and they broke with orthodoxy, thus stated. Didn't they present different doctrines or new ideas in their call to reform the church? And in reality, no, they did not. They saw themselves, again, not as creating something new, but reforming or returning to the teachings of the apostles and the early church fathers. So they saw themselves actually following this type of passage explicitly, that the church, in its, almost in its entirety, in its official teaching, had already veered, and they needed to bring it back in line with Scripture. So if, rather than running contrary to this, I think those men... We're obeying this passage, recognizing false teachers by their teaching and then opposing that. And a careful study of their writings will show this was their intention, and a comparison with scripture will show that they were correct, although I'm not going to take the time right now to do that. The teaching of these false teachers is different. It also disagrees, you see this? It does not agree with sound or healthy biblical teaching about Christ and the gospel. Does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness. So it disagrees with biblical teaching, whether that's found in the Old Testament or whether that's found in the New Testament, whether that's found in the Gospels or whether that's found in the Epistles. If someone is trying to jettison the Old Testament, calling for Christians to distance themselves from what it said, they are disagreeing with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and they are a false teacher. Have you ever thought about the word of God, the scriptures, the writings that were read and studied and taught by men like John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles in the early church? Have you ever asked yourself what Bible they were referring to? Was Jesus quoting from Paul's letter to the Ephesians? Uh, is Is he... quoting 1 Peter? No. He says this is what God's word says he's talking about. All of them are talking about the Old Testament. Nowhere does Paul say, stop worrying about the Old Testament, just read my writings and you'll be fine. Never says that. Instead, he says all scripture, and he specifically means the Old Testament, although it applies to the New as well, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. But false teachers will disagree and focus only on one, only on specific parts of the Bible while ignoring other parts. Which is one of the reasons why in our our preaching philosophy and practice, it's start in a book, work our way through. Uh, I don't don't trust myself, my own wisdom to just pick and choose what is best for God's people. Uh, I want to work through, which is how we end up preaching on slavery on Father's Day (laughs) with baptism. It's like, what, what was that? Like, this is the next text. And so it's like, well, when are you going to cover these things? Sometimes people, well, when are you going to cover this issue or this issue or this issue? It's like, well, when it comes up. And sometimes when it comes up, it's just like, really, that has to come up? That's this week? But I trust the Lord to have brought us to this point, to do these things. False teaching can be seen in its unbiblical content New, novel, disagreeing with what so many have recognized as being the true teaching of the gospel. Maybe disagreeing with certain parts. I don't like this Old Testament passage. Let's just distance ourselves from that, that type of content. But it also is seen by its ungodly fruit. They do not agree with the teaching that accords with godliness. So we can ask the question, does this teaching, whatever it is, does this teaching lead to behavior-transforming, reverent love for God? And is, it, is it Godward? Is it reverent-producing? Is it behavior-transforming? And I would say behavior-transforming, reverent love for God is what Paul means when he's saying godliness. Accords with godliness. It's not just external. We've talked about godliness. Paul's mentioned the word a number of times in this. And it's not just make sure your behavior is up to snuff. But it's this reverent love for God, which will inevitably change your behavior. But it's not clean the outside of the cup and everything's fine. As Jesus said, it's like, well, you can, you can cleanse all these things, and it's, but it's still, you're full of dead man's bones. Because you've done all this stuff on the outside, but there's nothing changed on the inside. But godliness and teaching that accords with, that lines up with, that produces godliness will be behavior transforming because the heart is changed. The heart is, is drawn toward God in love. Is the teaching that you're following, teaching that I'm presenting, is that producing this reverent love for God that does result in behavior transformation, in life transformation, in sanctification? Does it produce that, or does it promote disobedience to God's commands? Because that would be the, the alternative, Right? If it's love for God that causes us to align our behavior with God's standards, that's teaching that accords with godliness, what would the opposite be, right? No attention placed on God and producing no life change or behavior that is contrary to God's word. So if a teaching commends sinful lifestyles, it is a false teaching. If a teaching promotes disobedience to God's command, well, I know it says this, but you don't have to follow that. Beware of those things. It's a sure sign of false teaching. You know, the Bible is as clear about theft and murder as it is about the difference between pure and impure sexual relationships, regardless of what our world says. We need to be clear on these things. And again, it's not they... They need to be clear on these things. We need to be clear on these things. Right? It's like, oh yeah, you, you go, preacher. Tell those sinners out there. They're not listening. Are you listening? Because it starts here. As we desire earnestly not to promote or succumb to false teaching, let's also remember Paul's earlier warning from chapter 4, One type of false teaching promotes sin that's outward and visible. And another type of false teaching promotes asceticism and rejecting God's good gifts, right? There's overindulgence, that's sin, and there's refusal to enjoy any of God's gifts for the sake of holiness because you're so much better. That's also sin that Paul warns against. Let's be wary of both ditches, seek to stay faithfully in the path in the middle gratefully receiving God's gifts without abusing them. If you want more of that, there's a whole sermon. Just look back on the website to chapter 4. We recognize false teachers by their teaching and also by their character. Paul continues to describe the, the false teachers. He gives some details about what they are like and what their ministries are like. First, they're consumed by arrogance, and conceit. If anyone does this, he's puffed up with conceit then understands nothing. They're puffed up with how important they think they are and how wise and insightful they think they are. They know better than anyone else, including the authors of scripture. You may be, you may be, this is tongue in cheek, you may be naive or simple-minded in your thinking about Christianity, but they alone have uncovered the real truth. And you can buy it with their new book. It's a bestseller. Like their last seven books. It also had nothing to do with Scripture. They really know what God's, words, God's word means, even if you can't see it. And no one else has ever seen it. You see the arrogance on that? I understand better than anybody else. I haven't had the humility to learn. Instead, they're puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. They think they can see what no one else can see, and they are seeing what no one else has seen, but it's also not to be found in Scripture. Really, no one's seen it because it's just not there. The opposite is true. Their teaching isn't new because they understand more than everyone else. Their false teaching is because they arrogantly understand nothing. Their teaching is rooted in ignorance of God's word. These false teachers also have a tendency to pursue wrong priorities puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing, having an unhealthy craving. Paul mentions things like this, unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. You Back in chapter one, again, another bookend, these passages are aligning themselves together. Paul said that these false teachers had devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, wandering away into vain or empty discussions as if they were teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. One sense, they say a lot, a lot of words. The other hand, they say nothing. (laughs) Nothing of truth and nothing of substance. Questions without answers, just to sound smart or confusing or philosophical. Philosophy isn't wrong, but if you're just like, I just wanna be vague and confusing, and then you're all like, yeah, I am confused. It's like, exactly. what Questions without answers, disagreements without resolution, controversies unclarified by truth. These are the signs of this type of thing, the, the things that drive them and define their ministries. It could be a novelty or it could just be like, some sort of an edginess, but never actually coming to a resolution? Like, is there something concrete from God's word for people to be able to grow? Like, what is it that you teach about who God is? What is it that you teach about who Christ is and what he has done? What is the nature of the church? You know, what does it mean to be lost? What does it mean to be saved? Are these things uh, hinted at? Are these things skirted Are they dodging those type of questions, and then you're like, wow, he said a lot, and a smile looked pretty, but I don't actually think he answered a single question. False teachers. Just can't nail them down. What is that that phrase, like nailing jello to a wall? Is that the phrase? Did I just make that up? Anybody heard that before? Okay, thank you. Flowing out of these controversies, these quarrels about about words or about myths or about genealogies, whatever these things are, things that are not uh, primary, clear, and relevant to knowing who God is and and living, uh, trusting his son and the gospel. Flowing out of these controversies and quarrels are uh, envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction. There's no actual pursuit of Christian unity anchored to truth. Maybe they're driven by an envy of the attention other teachers get or their reputation. Maybe they're willing to divide a church to gain their own personal following. Maybe they will slander other pastors who are seeking to be faithful to God's word, casting doubt on their character and the content of their teaching all out of envy for some level of success that somebody else has, seeking to draw followers to themselves rather than the attitude that Paul had mentioned earlier. Of, it's like, not everything's going to remain visible. Do you remember the, the, the phrasing of preach the gospel, die and be forgotten because it's not about us? So that's the humility that should be the characteristics of Christians rather than follow me, I must have a name for myself. Producing envy and slander and all of these different things that are mentioned in this. The fruit of their, their lives and ministries will be this constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And these terms point to the, the infection, right? the, the virus, the sickness, the poison That this unsound, unhealthy, unbiblical teaching has caused in the minds and hearts of those who have listened to it, rot has started to set in in their souls. Truth has been abandoned. There are consequences to following false teaching. Paul spends the most time on this last character flaw that he talks about as the love of money or possessions. There they cause this friction among people, depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, and then almost in a climactic sense, imagining that godliness is a means of, great, uh, of gain. Godliness were probably more likely the show of godliness, putting themselves forward as a teacher of the gospel. Like, ah, that's the path. That's how I get Rich. Or, as I mentioned before, I think even last week, comes to the love of money, comes to the discussion of greed. So easy to think about how other people are guilty rather than ourselves, right? It's like, well, I know I make X, but, but that guy makes Y. He's greedy. I mean, I just need, I, I need this to, to get by. This is, this is the minimum. But that guy, you know, I know I have... Five cars, but that guy, he's got six. What a greedy monster. Always looking at somebody else rather than wondering with ourselves, what about ours? Do we think that godliness is a means of gain? And one author I read this week helped point the finger back to ourselves as he described this phrase, not something that we're just looking out. It's, like it's, it's easy to take shots at like a health or wealth preacher with this because they are using the form of godliness for financial gain. And God will judge them for that because it's, it's, that's clear false teaching, right? So it's so easy to just take a shot at that and then just move on and miss the fact that uh, have we actually looked in the mirror for ourselves as James requires us to do. So this author says, this is not a fixation with obscene wealth that Paul rejects. His objection is more subtle. Wherever people think that the gospel message, are you listening? Wherever people think that the gospel message is primarily about better quality of life, personal well-being, or gain as measured in a materialist human consumer society, they run afoul of Paul's criticisms here. It's not just them, wherever they are, right? Is it in our hearts? If you're following Jesus, I talked about this last week, if you're following Jesus so that all the problems in your life will go away, you're likely to end up sorely disappointed. You think everything is supposed to get better immediately or eventually here and now? Because nowhere in scripture is that kind of improvement promised. In fact, the opposite is promised instead. Opposition, persecution, criticism, loss of relationships, and various types of suffering and affliction, and on and on. Jesus said, if they hated me, and they did, they will also hate you. Does that sound like an improvement of quality of life here and now on this earth prior to death or the return of Christ? Is that really what we're supposed to be expecting? It's so easy to come to God as a means of serving our own idols. It is so easy to come to God as a means of serving our own idols. What rules your heart? What is the one thing, maybe there's more than one thing, what is the one thing that if God doesn't give it to you or if God takes it away, that's the end of it. I will follow you on these terms. And if he doesn't give it to you or if he takes it away, then you'll turn your back on him and you'll stop following. Is it your husband or your wife? Is it your children, your house, your job, your success, your children's success, your health, your children's health, your children's faith? God, you must do this for me or else. If we were to be honest, that's what we're saying. And we're not worshiping the Lord at that point. We're worshiping an idol. And we're seeking to have God bow down to it with us. So we say, I don't want too much. I don't even want a lot. I just want enough to not have to worry. I just want enough to not have to trust God for my daily bread. I just want like a week out, month out, year out. I just want to have all my retirement lined up. So I just want, totally want to trust God every day for every little thing as long as I also know that my 401K is on a good trajectory. Like Santa Claus or a genie, God should give it to me because I've been really good this year. That's not the gospel. It's not Christianity. It's so easy to imagine that Godliness is a means of gain, like these false teachers said. Don't follow those people, right? Know who those people are. Don't follow them. Don't be like them. Don't pass that poison on to anyone else. Recognize false teachers by teaching and character and by their end as well. You know, sometimes it takes a little while for the falseness of a false teacher to be revealed, The path someone is on may not be clear until they get closer to their destination. What awaits false teachers and the followers of false teachers down the path that they have chosen as they have veered from the gospel? If it's rooted in this this imagining that godliness is a means of gain, we could go down to verse 9. Those who desire to be rich, the same love of of money or wanting to use godliness and their relationship with God as a means of temporal earthly gain. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So what awaits false teachers and the followers of false teachers down the path that they have chosen? Temptations and snares and traps and many senseless and harmful desires. Pits of ruin and destruction. The path may look wide and it may be wide and it may be popular and it may look flat. There are dangers that you don't see. Here's something that you can count on as a guarantee. Sin always leads to more sin. Sin always leads to more sin. Like drinking salt water, the more that you take in, the more you want, and the less you're satisfied. The more that you feed your sinful flesh, the hungrier it will grow. The love of money, this love of money or possessions, Paul describes as a root of all kinds of evils. This is one of those uh, classically uh, misquoted texts, right? How, I'm sure you've heard it, right? Money is the root of all evil. Like no translation says that. Just it's easy to be like, "Oh, I'm know, Christian and God and hate money and blah 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 blah." They probably just want all my money. No, the love of money. Big difference between having and loving. Maybe the line can look a little bit blurry, because as we have, we love what we have. But you can have and not love. You cannot have and still love. Do you have the difference on that? But It's just kind of like, oh, once again, I am exempt from this text because I'm so poor. Not a problem. You cannot have it and still love it. And the danger <sighs> still applies, which is how that teaching that's like, this isn't only focused on that, that health and wealth teaching poisoning whole continents across the globe as those who are destitute are being drawn to a false gospel by false teachers that godliness is a means of gain because they love money, because they're not believers, But we as believers must resist these types of things. It's a root of all kinds of evils. You know, most of the time, if you plant a seed, you know what will come up if it grows at all. Maybe maybe we're not successful gardeners, but if you plant tomato seed, a tomato should come up, right? Like not a master gardener at all. Probably the opposite, but I do know that. I don't think anybody's gonna contradict me, right? Plant a tomato seed, get a tomato, yeah? Well, a couple years ago, I did my best to plan an organized garden. Quadrants, there's maybe more than four, so I don't know if it can be quadrants. And I became really confused when my tomato area started growing a melon vine. Now again, it's like tomato, I go with tomato because it's like the one thing that I'm always sure about. Because when you touch the tomato plant, you smell it, it smells very unique. Maybe everything smells unique, I just don't get that. But tomatoes, I'm like, that's a tomato. Not tomatoes and tomato, like the two categories that I have. And so it's was like, this is not a tomato, this is not a weed, and then all of a sudden something grew, and I also know the difference between a green tomato growing on a vine and a cantaloupe. And so in the middle of my planted tomato areas, I was like, I've done it. I have come across a new hybrid, cantalados. Just made that up on this spot. I don't think I really thought about that, but I was really confused Maybe I'd come across something brilliant. Not really. Uh, and I couldn't figure out how did I grow a cantaloupe vine when I didn't plant any cantaloupes and I had never planted cantaloupes. Watermelons, peppers, just really, really confused. Our best guess, we had composted cantaloupe seeds and one had waited to germinate. The hearty little thing. Didn't produce good fruit, so I just pulled it up. An organized gardener knows what to expect in his or her garden. Here's the problem with the root of money Love. You never know what sin it will produce. It is a root of all kinds of evil. There's no type of evil, in fact, which cannot arise from this root of money love. Greed or love of money, possession, obsession has led some to lying, some to theft, some to immorality, some to substance abuse, some to murder. There are even the power hoarding of the Pharisees who rejected Jesus. That man that we talked about earlier who, coming up to Jesus, still only had a question about money and stuff, that was the most important thing to him. He wasn't the only one. Luke describes the Pharisees in Luke 16, 14 as those who were lovers of money, lovers of possessions, lovers of this world. And when you, go, when you bring that toe-to-toe with Christ, what they did is they chose power and money and possessions and here and now. They chose that over Jesus and so worked to have him executed. This craving for more things, for better things, for better circumstances. What is the end to this? It's devastating. Look at the end of verse 10. Through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith. And consider the danger of that. Just like, I just know, I just want a little bit more, a little bit different of a standard of comfort. Like, I don't want too much. I just need a little bit more. As you pursue that, you're wandering away from the faith of Jesus Christ. And isn't that faithful to the rest of scripture? Did not Jesus himself teach that you cannot, no one can, serve two masters? Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What are you talking about, Jesus? You cannot serve God and, what is it? Money or mammon, depending on which translation you go off of there. What is that talking about? You cannot live for the world to come and this world at the same time. You must choose. And the false teaching has chosen. And if you have chosen, you are moving toward false teaching. Some have wandered away from the faith. Maybe through disappointment that they aren't getting what they wanted love the world and the things of the world. They're not getting that, whatever that might be. And so they're, they're like, all right, enough with Christianity. Paul goes even further there, wandering away from the faith and piercing themselves with many pangs. This is really vivid language. This craving leads to piercing yourself. I mean, this means impaling yourself. I mean, like, hear this. Stabbing yourself in the gut with a sword, not not pleasant. Like, who would want to do that? Like Who would want to cause themselves this type of pain, this type of mortal wound? But, but this craving causes you to pierce yourself with many pangs, a sword of sorrows and griefs and sharp pains. And these aren't even just the final tortures of the loss. This isn't even talking about the eternal consequences of our sin. But how many different examples can we see throughout life and history in our own area, maybe even in your own family, maybe even in your own life, of present griefs which accompany the avaricious or greedy money-loving person, pangs of conscience, disillusionment, spiritual unrest, many other unhappy accompaniments are the product of this course of life, as one person put it. It's like, have we ever pursued, has anyone ever pursued the fleeting pleasures of sin in this life? and enjoy that without the consequences of, of guilt i'm sure some would say that they have that's the most dangerous position to be in pursuing the things of this world and rejecting christ is a path to misery now and forever whenever you when have you ever when have you ever gotten something that you wanted that strongly when have you ever gotten it and found it to actually be fully satisfying did, did, that, did the vacation solve your problems? Like, did the new car smell last? Right? Did the promotion leave you like, oh, I don't need any more promotions. This is it. Like, We're excited to move into to a new house closing this week. And we can think so often, it's kind of like, oh, that'll be, the, that'll be the cause of, there won't be any other stress once it's in a new house. This is like, well, except when we move ourselves into it and my own stressed heart is there. We could live in a 50,000-square-foot warehouse and still going to be tripping over socks and shoes and Legos. This is like, well, it's your kid's fault. It's like, well, maybe it is, but when I get angry, it's not them. That's me. Dissatisfaction. Discontentment. Pangs which we're piercing ourselves through, follow the love of stuff or the love of money, the love of possessions. We need to recognize these false teachers, their teaching, their character, their end, so that we don't follow them and so that we don't become them. This is like a foil, though. You know what a foil is? Uh, Literary, little rarely in literature. Foil's a character that's put there, a situation that allows for differences to be seen between two individuals. Like you think of Goliath in the story of David and Goliath, and it's like, well, there was actually a story kind of prior to David and Goliath, which was Saul and Goliath. And so when an insurmountable object is placed in front of that, Saul can't beat Goliath. David can't beat Goliath. Nobody can beat Goliath but that serves as sort of a reflection or a spotlight shining on the two of them to see like, do you see the difference? What does Saul do? Nothing. What does David do? Praise, trusts the Lord and God delivers him. And so we see the heart of the, the king chosen by the people who trusts himself. We see the heart of God's king who trusts the Lord. And then through God's king, who's not like God's people and who's not like man's king God's king able to defeat God's enemies the the sin the, the those who are threatening God's and God's people so we want to recognize false teachers but then the last part of this we want to pursue the opposite That's the thing too, just like, so we shine this up, right? It's like a mirror, like uh, James 1 talks about. We come before the word, like, okay, what do I look like? What does a false teacher look like? Holding that up, comparing that to you. Don't be like that, but then also pursue the opposite, right? so many times, it's not just stop lying, it's start telling the truth, right? Repentance is a change that takes place. So we want to pursue the opposite of these things. Looking at the mirror and being willing to change by God's grace. I want to pursue the opposite of these false teachers first in our beliefs. Change, pursue the opposite of false teachers and false teaching in your beliefs. You elders like Timothy, like me, we must teach and urge these things according to the end of verse 2. Well, what things? Sound doctrine, biblical truth, that which is recorded for us in sacred scripture, Elders must faithfully teach it to the church, and the church must eagerly attend to that teaching. Listening, paying careful attention, and prayerfully seeking how God wants us to change. You have a responsibility in the gathering, too. Not just, I have a responsibility to teach faithfully. You have a responsibility to make sure I'm teaching faithfully, you have a responsibility to listen to the faithful teaching of God's word and prayerfully seek to be changed. We must be committed to sound biblical teaching about Christ and the gospel. And as we've discussed again and again in 1 Timothy, a huge part of this is that churches must be careful only to ordain qualified godly elders to lead the church. And also... Thinking back through other parts of 1 Timothy, we must train ourselves for godliness. Chapter 4 said, consider what are the things that have taken root in our hearts and work to uproot them by God's grace. Pursuing those things in our beliefs, pursuing these things in our character, if the false teachers are puffed up with conceit, well, what, uh, what are we supposed to reflect instead? They're puffed up with conceit, what are we to be? Humble. Humble. Humility says that the kingdom of Christ is not about you and it's not about me. It's not about whether my teaching is special or my teaching is heard for X amount of time. It's is God's word being explained and instructed and urged on God's people. Which is more important? Me, my reputation, my success, or the word of God. May it always be that we all recognize that it's the word of God. In your character, don't delight in controversies, quarrelings, and arguments. And he has, about character, he has these three wise sayings. It's almost like he's just rattling off Proverbs here, teaching wisdom in, con- in, in contradiction to this imagination that godliness is a means of gain. It's the verses that I, I skipped, not because I don't like them, I just wanted to fit them in here. You see in verse 6, they think godliness is a means of gain here and now. Then he, he, can, he contradicts that. He says instead, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But do you think that he's talking about financial things? He's like, okay, if you, you, you come to church, have reverence for God, follow him, and you're content, then you'll get the money. That's what he's saying. Because there's gain that isn't measured in possessions, isn't measured in bank accounts, isn't measured in success. There is great gain that would last forever. And that's what he's talking about. Because his second uh, proverb of sorts here, this is found at least three times in the Old Testament as well. We see this in verse 7. What is this great gain? When do we get to cash in on this, we could ask. Well, we brought nothing into the world... We can take nothing out of the world. Remember seeing like a picture, hearing a story, a guy buried in his Cadillac with piles of money. What did that do? What did the pharaohs really take with them? Nothing. The treasures were just saved up for later Museums. You took nothing with you with them into the afterlife as it were none of your possessions none of them you will take with you not a penny and not a penny of what you have not a square foot not a single promotion not a single award will follow you into the new heavens and the new earth see but there is great gain godliness with contentment that does follow you Right? The change that has taken place in your walk with Christ, your love for God, your pursuit of that and the fruit of a life of ministry, that does follow you. That is the great eternal gain that we have. At pictures of crowns being offered before the Lord. So your pursuits, is it going to follow you into the life to come? Or is it keeping you from walking with Christ. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We come, like Job said, I came into this world naked, and I'm destitute, I'm gonna leave this world naked, because the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. But he showed the transformation in his heart when he said it in the midst of that, but blessed be the name of the Lord. So what should our focus be? What if we have food and clothing? Basic necessities, with these we will be content. Even those are not to be things that we worry about. Jesus said, your father will take care of those things. And Hebrews 13, 5, I think is relevant to this. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So now we see what the actual contrast is between these two things. You have a love of money and an obsession with possessions in the here and now, or you have trust in a faithful God. One of those is greed and one of those is contentment. It's okay that I don't have everything that I want. It's okay that I'm going through suffering because God is with me. Contentment isn't, I have everything lined up Contentment is actually only revealed when everything isn't lined up, but God is there with you. So we ask ourselves those questions. Which is more important? What are we gonna pursue? And then we pursue the opposite in our end as well to ask ourselves, is all of this worth it? Is it worth it to not live for the here and now? To not love money? To be willing to go without things that other people around us have and, and enjoy and seem to continue to have blessings. Is that worth it? Yes, because one day faith will become sight. That which we are hoping for will be realized. The vapor of our brief lives will fade and the substance of the life to come will become clear and a forever reality. Spiritual health Growth in godliness, those are the things that will come with us beyond the grave. So we avoid the temptations. We stay away from the traps and the snares. We're not plagued with are plunged into ruin and destruction. We we don't wander away from the faith. We stay faithful to the Lord. We don't stab ourselves through with many sorrows, but we maintain spiritual health. And then we look forward to eternal life, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, which are ours. And we have the hope of ownership and rulership over all of the new creation with Christ, our Savior and King and Husband. It's a value call. It's a value judgment. So consider now or then. You can only live for one. Now is what Jesus was talking about of loving money, craving for these things. Then is loving God. So there's a choice put before you as you consider the true teaching of the gospel versus the false teaching of the world, which will it be? Joy or sorrow? Contentment or covetousness? Jesus or the world? Let's pray. Father, I believe your word is is clear That this is the choice that's put before us, like Moses said, put before the people life and death, blessing and cursing, and he urged them to choose life. Would you help us to see clearly from these things that the choice that is before us right now and and every day for the rest of our lives is choosing eternal joy that we enjoy now or sorrow, being content because we have you, or being covetous because we want more stuff and really as clear as choosing between Jesus or the world. By grace, would you help us to choose in a way that is pleasing to you, amen.